0: Seriously. And the study kind of came about in a variety of ways. One was a video, which I'll probably show at some point in the series, but not tonight. But the other was on an article I read a couple of weeks ago. It was about a, a guy named Jordan Peterson. Now, I, I know almost nothing about Jordan Peterson other than his name. I've seen him he referenced on social media. But I really don't know anything about him, so I could not condemn him or condemn him. I don't know enough about him. But the article was titled, Living Like You Believe in God. And the guy who wrote it is an elder of a big church in England. And in the article, he gives a quote by Jordan Peterson about whether or not he believes in God. And here's a part of what Jordan Peterson says. He said, let's say you do believe in God. That's hypothetically pretty impressive. It's like you believe that there's a divine power that oversees everything, that is fundamentally ethical, that's watching everything you do. So what effect does that have on your behavior if you believe it? Are you sacrificing everything to this transcendent entity that you proclaim belief in? Have you cleansed yourself of all your sin? If you believe in God, actually, like seriously... You'd be a good person right now because of, well, for obvious reasons. If that hasn't happened in some sort of miraculous sense, so that you're the best person you could possibly imagine being on an ongoing basis, and then terrified of deviating from that path in a serious manner, then I don't see why you have the right to say that you believe in God. That's a powerful statement, I thought. And while he may not understand some of the finer nuances of the gospel or of grace, I think the gist of his statement is exactly right. I mean, if we say we believe in God, the God of the Bible, then this belief should have a profound impact on our values, on our priorities, on our attitudes, on our actions, on our reactions, on our morality, on how we manage our time, on how we steward our money, on how we are in our relationships and even the kind of relationships we have, how we treat others, how we use our spiritual gifts. I mean, really, there's just no aspect of life which should not be fundamentally affected by the fact we say we believe in God. Because the God of the Bible, according to the Bible, He is great and awesome. Now, when I say the God of the Bible is great and awesome, that can often be left as kind of a a nebulous thought. Yes, God is great, but but I want to do a little bit today. We're going to look at two two passages of Scripture. We're going to start in Isaiah 40 and, and kind of lay a foundation, a groundwork of what I mean when I say God is great and God is awesome. Then we're going to go to a psalm and we're going to look at, what does it look like? Okay, if I believe in this great and this awesome God, then what would it look like for me to take Him seriously? What would it look like for me to live like I believe in a great and an awesome God? So turn first to Isaiah 40, verse 12. And we're just going to look at verses 12 through 18. I kind of wanted to look at the whole chapter, uh, but there's not time. But this is a good summation of what it is when it says God is great and awesome. Isaiah 40 verse 12. That would be page 546 for using a pew bottle. Isaiah 40 and 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in measure, and weighed the mountain in a scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or been His counselor, hath taught Him? With whom took He counsel, and who instructed Him, and taught Him the path of judgment, and taught Him knowledge, and showed Him all the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as small dust on the balance. Behold, He taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before Him are as nothing, and they are counted to Him as less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto Him? Now verse 18 is really the key verse in this particular section. To whom will you liken God? If God is all of that, who is comparable To God is anyone or anything even remotely as great and as awesome as God. And the answer is no. He is the incomparable God. In this passage it gives us three reasons. Three ways God is incomparable. God is incomparably powerful. Like verse 12 asks a series of rhetorical questions. Who hath done this? Who has done that? And, and the intended answer is no one but God. Right? There is no one, no being, no one anywhere ever who can do these things, but God can. So these things teach us about the power of God. Right? So verse 12 says, God is so powerful, He can hold all the waters of the earth in the palm of His hand. Right? Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, now, so imagine if you were to take a cup your hand and get a measuring cup of some sort, how much water could you hold in one cupped hand before it would start to spill out in one direction or another? Not a lot, but but God is so great, so powerful, so immense. That all the waters of the earth, however many trillions and jillions of gallons that would be, would all fit in the palm of His hand without a single drop spilling out. Something that is unfathomable for us is absolutely no problem to our incomparable God because He is incomparably powerful. God is so powerful, He can measure the universe with the span of His hand. Right? Or... Meeted out the heavens with the span. right? And so, our universe is amazingly vast. I read something that said our universe is at least 156 billion light years wide. Now I don't even understand how far that is. Just really, really far. Despite the vastness of the universe... The picture is God is able to grasp it with His hand because it is no wider than the, the span of His hand. It's like God can palm the universe. Right now, a span is from the, the tip of your thumb to the tip of your middle finger. Right? And so the average span for a, an adult man is 9 inches. The Bible says God is so great... His span is so large that He can palm, He can grab the entire universe in the, just one hand. Not two hands, not a strain, just a grab. Because He is incomparably powerful. God is so powerful He can weigh the earth. It says that in the, He uh, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scales and the hills in a balance. And it pictures God being able to calculate the amount of dust on the planet as easily as we might be able to weigh a pound of meat, as we might be able to weigh a few ounces of of coffee grounds. And it does, it kind of pictures the way we would go when you go to Walmart and you pick up a thing of bananas, and you pick them up and you weigh them to see how much it's going to cost. You don't put forth a lot of effort. You don't brace yourself. You just kind of... And the picture is that's what God could do. If God decided to weigh the earth, it would be like... lay it up there. There would be no strain, no stress upon Him at all because our God is incomparably powerful. He can do anything He sets His mind to do. He is more powerful than our minds... Can comprehend. God is not only incomparably powerful. God is also incomparably knowledgeable. But in verse 13 and 14. We are also given some more rhetorical questions. And again the idea is meant to be. No one. No one can do this. Right. So who hath directed the spirit of the Lord. Or been his counselor. And hath taught him. Well let's start with the first one. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord. This picture is an advisory role. Who in existence has ever went to God and said, God, I think you should do it this way instead of that way. And God said, oh, man, that's right. I never thought of doing it like that before. Wow, that's a that's a thought I never had. But there's there's never anything that doesn't occur to God. Right? There's never anyone that can go to God and say, I think you should do this. And God would be like, man, I never thought about that. But yes, you're right. That's what I ought to do. But not only has no one ever gone to God with those ideas, no one has ever been his counselor, who has been his counselor and taught him, with who took he counsel, who instructed him. And it just goes on in this passage in verse 14, saying, who has God sought out? Just as no one ever went to God and said, hey, I think this would be a better way. God never got to a place and said, I I just don't know what to do. I mean, I'm just stumped about this problem. What do I do? How do I fix this? What would be the best route to go? God has never come to the place where He's at the end of His own knowledge. He knows all things. God has never needed an advisor of any kind. Because He is omniscient and He knows all things. In other places in Isaiah, God says, He is the one who tells the end from the beginning. But He does things no idols or people can do because He knows all things about all things. God is incomparably knowledgeable. God is also incomparably worthy. Verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as small dust upon the balance. So, God So great, so worthy, so amazing, the nations of the world are counted as nothing in comparison to God. Now, we've probably all heard the phrase, to drop in a bucket. That's where it came from. It came from Isaiah 40, verse 15 in the King James Bible. That is where that phrase in our society came from. And it means something that's insignificant, an insignificant amount. If we were dropped a five gallon bucket of water down in a well to scoop up the water and as we pulled it up one tiny little drop were to fall out we would not be stressed about such an insignificant amount falling out and the picture is in the same way you have God here in all his greatness and all his glory and all his power and all his majesty and you have all the nations of the world over here they are They are so outclassed by God that they are like a drop in a bucket. That if you look at them in all of their glory, not on their worst days, but on their best days, every empire of man that ever has existed or ever will exist at the height and the glory of their empire, you compare them to God and they are nothing. It's not even close. Because God is so much greater than they are. He illustrates this even further by saying that the nations are like a small dust on the balance. So the balance refers to basically scales, like you would use at a market. And, of course, when you go to the market, you want the scales to be accurate, because how much you pay depends on what what the thing weighs. But imagine you go to Walmart tomorrow, and you pick up a bunch of bananas and You're going to put them on the scales. But the lady in front of you, the guy in front of you, before he gets up there, he's real concerned about the scales being accurate. So he takes out a wipe and he wipes it down because he doesn't want even a speck of dust on there to add to the weight of the bananas. We would think, what a loon, right? We would drop in our minds, I cannot believe this, wasting my time on having to do this. Well, the picture here is that when you weigh the, the value of God versus all of the nations of the world in the height of their glory, they're like that speck of dust on the scales. They're just tiny and insignificant in comparison to God. That, that's how worthy, how glorious God is. But, but he goes on and he says that the best sacrifices of the nations are inadequate for God. Look at verse 16. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the forests of Lebanon were were prized. The wood of Lebanon was very, very valuable. Anytime somebody wanted to build something with wood, they wanted the wood of Lebanon. They wanted that wood because it was better than other wood. So. The forest of Lebanon was filled with these valuable trees and it's filled with all kinds of animals. So God tells Israel here, if you were to go to Lebanon and you were to take every tree in the forest and you were to cut it down and build an altar with it and then you were to take every animal in Lebanon and you were to lay it upon the altar and burn it, that offering, that alone would not be sufficient. God is greater than all that Lebanon could offer. And the picture for Israel that we need to see isn't just one forest in the Middle East. The idea is that if you were to take all of the most valuable substance on the earth and you were to lay it as an offering before the Lord, as a sacrifice, it would still not be enough. God is still worth more that all of the best, all of this world has to offer. And Then he says the nations of the world are worthless before him. Look at verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him as less than nothing in vanity. In vanity it means worthless essentially. The idea here is of relative importance. How important are all the nations of the earth in comparison to God. If you take all of the nations in the world, and all of their glory, and the height of their empires, and you compare their worth and their importance to God, you would find they were nothing, less than nothing. They were worthless in comparison to God. Great and powerful nations have risen. Great and powerful nations have fallen and yet God stands as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Nations rise and fall at His command and according to His will. And if the, the, the Lord tarries for a thousand more years, nations will rise and nations will fall, but God will remain. Because God is greater, worthier, than every nation that has ever existed, every nation that will exist, and in comparison to God, the greatest nation that this earth could ever produce, it would still be before God. Nothing, less than nothing, and worthless in comparison. That is how incomparably worthy God is. So when we say we believe in God, We are saying we believe this about God because this is who God has revealed Himself to be. How can belief in that God not change us? How could we believe in this God and not be different because of this belief? How could believing in a God who is incomparably powerful, incomparably knowledgeable, and incomparably worthy not have a profound impact on our values? On our priorities, on our attitudes, on our actions, on our reactions, on our morality, on the way we manage our time, the way we steward our money, the way we have relationship with others, how we treat others made in the image of God—kind of what we do with the spiritual gifts God has given us. How could belief in that God not impact all of those areas? Could it couldn't. It it couldn't. It's just not possible. If we believe in that God, everything changes. And we add to this, that this same great God, he, He looked down from heaven and He saw us wallowing in our sin and our rebellion against Him. Knowing we were headed for a just judgment. We had deserved it. We have shook our fist at Him. And we have said, no, you will not rule over me. And He looked down. And He could have just poured out judgment. And it would have been a just action on His part. But instead of doing that, He cast off a measure of His glory. And He came to earth. And He took on human flesh. And He was born of a virgin. And He lived a sinless life. He performed great miracles. He was rejected and despised of men. And He died a a horrible death upon the cross. But the, the death on the cross wasn't a surprise. It was the point. He came to die. But He didn't just come to die any old way. He didn't come to die as a martyr for the cause, to inspire people to be good. He didn't come to die as someone that was just what a tragic end and injustice is so bad. No, he came to die as a sacrifice for the the sins of the people who had rebelled against him and had rejected his rule over their lives. He died so that this rebellion against Him could be brought to a close and we could be reconciled unto Him. The King died for the subjects who were in rebellion against Him. The Creator died for the creation that said, You will not be My King. Then He rose again on the third day. And this great God who took on human flesh And died a horrible death for the sake of rebellious people and then rose again. He ever lives and He makes intercession for us. And He calls to rebellious sinners, come to me, ye that are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Come and find forgiveness for your souls. Come and find living water to satisfy your thirst. Come to find living bread to satisfy your hunger. Come to find forgiveness for your sins. Come to find life instead of death. Come to find purpose and eternal significance in Me. All made possible by Him. All done through Him. Nothing of ourselves accomplishes this. We believe that. This is the core of what we believe as disciples of Jesus. How could that belief in this God and what He did, how could we believe in this God and what He did and remain unchanged by this belief? How could I believe the great and incomparable God Died for my sin and rose again and forgiven me, forgave me, not because I was good, but because he was. How, how could that not change my values? How could that not change my priorities? How could that not change my attitudes and my actions and how I react to stressors and my morality? and the way I manage my time, and the way I steward my finances, and the relationships I have, and, and what, how I act in those relationships, how I treat others made in His image for whom He also died. How could it not change the way I find and use my spiritual gifts? It couldn't. It just couldn't. And yet, what we see so often in our culture, it's people who claim to believe all of the things we've just talked about, but it has zero impact on their day to day lives. They are not in any way different than their unbelieving friends, except they have a verbal profession of faith in God. That's the only difference. Not in their morals, not on their values, not on their priorities, or their attitudes, or their actions, or their reactions. Or how they use their time. Or how they use their money. Or their relationships. Or or any other way. Just the one. Yes I believe in God. And that's all. To paraphrase the book of James. Surely my brothers and sisters. These things ought not to be. And we want to be sure this isn't us. We want to be sure our lives demonstrate. We take God as seriously As His greatness and power and majesty deserve. What does it look like to take God seriously? What does it look like in our lives to truly understand who God is, what God is like, and then respond in a way that demonstrates, not says, but demonstrates, I take God seriously. Turn to Psalm 112. I think that's page 466. And we're just going to look at the first verse. Psalm 112 is a part of my Bible reading recently. And verse 1 stood out and has been on my mind ever since. Praise you the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in His commandments. To me, verse 1 demonstrates in in a near perfect way the kind of response from someone who understands who God is and what God is like and takes that God very, very seriously. So there are three actions this verse gives us demonstrate we take God seriously first is praise the Lord right so if I want to take God seriously I understand who he is and what he's like and I take him seriously I'm going to praise the Lord now when I think about praising the Lord because I understand who he is and what he's like I, I think almost in terms of it being spontaneous or can't be contained It's like when I think about who God is, when I think about what God's like and what God has done, there is something within me. It it wells up and and it has to come out. It's bubbling and at some point it must come out. It is just a, a passionate eruption of praise brought on by a deeper understanding of His greatness and His goodness and His majesty and His power. It is a, a declaration of God's worth and value to us. You know, the English word worship, it, it actually comes from two words, meaning, or really the word worship. And it came because you considered someone or something worthy of admiration and respect. What you did when you worshiped was you were declaring worth. The worth of this person, the worth of this act, the worth of this being. And we are declaring the worth of God. It, but here's the deal, right? Because it's, it's a very personal thing. It's not so much I can say the right words and that declares God's worth. That It can be that. But it's as I do it, the way I do it, it declares His worth to me. Right. It is my way of saying, this is what God means to me. He is worthy in my life. He is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my honor. He is worthy of my praise. And He alone is worthy. So let me ask you a question. We know worship is more than singing. But we often focus it there, so I'll focus it there for this tonight the way we sang tonight, the way you were involved, and the way you declared God's praises in the songs we sang, did they demonstrate, did it demonstrate He is worthy of glory and honor and praise? Think about the way the angelic beings worshipped God in Isaiah 6. They worshipped so really so loudly, their voices shook the temple. They were enthusiastic. They were intense. They were totally committed to demonstrating God was worthy. Glory, honor, and praise. Does this demonstrate? Or is this the way we worship? Does the way we worship demonstrate this about God? How many times has our our worship of God half-hearted and unfocused. But a bigger question, what does half-hearted and unfocused worship say about our view of God? What does it say about who we understand God is or who we understand God is like? The reality is half-hearted worship it's always a sign of a poor view of God. Unfocused worship is a sign of a poor view of God. Just think about it with, in relation to a person. If you came to talk to me in my office about something big and important in your life, and you were having problems, and then when you... Began to talk. I, I sat down, and I put my feet up on my desk, and I got my phone, and I was going, Uh huh. Like, yeah, right. Would you feel important to me in that moment? Would you feel that what you were saying mattered to me? Would, would you feel that you mattered to me at all? So, what does our unfocused worship say to God? What does our half-hearted, not paying attention, balancing our checkbooks, playing on our phone, thinking about what we could be doing and said, what does that say to God about how we view Him? Make no mistake. It declares we have a wrong view of who God is and what God is like. It shows we do not understand how great and how awesome He is it shows we do not take our God seriously. We cannot see and recognize the power, the majesty and the greatness of our God without it moving us to passionate, awe-inspired worship. So we praise the Lord. Secondly, we fear the Lord. Now the fear of the Lord is a common theme In Scripture. Proverbs 1 and 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you look at Psalm 111 verse 10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. Psalm 128 says, The fear of the Lord is the path to blessing. In Deuteronomy, the fear of the Lord is frequently given as a reason to serve God, to obey God, to worship God and God alone. 1 Peter 1 and 17 says, Knowing God judges all people without partiality, that we should live our lives on earth in fear. Philippians 1.12 says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the terror of the Lord is a part of what motivated him to work hard at persuading other people about the gospel. This small sampling teaches us the fear of the Lord is a common and important theme in both the Old and the New Testament. And despite this being such a consistent theme throughout the Bible, it is relatively unheard in our day. And it is mostly misunderstood in our day. And I believe this is a problem in the modern church. I think one of the reasons it's often neglected is because it's kind of hard to understand. I mean, what does it actually mean to fear the Lord? I've been taught that it it means to respect God or sort to of reverence, sort of awe. And I think that's partially true, but I think it's incomplete. It doesn't go far enough. Because think about who we're talking about when we talk about God. We're talking about a being with unlimited power and unlimited knowledge. We're talking about a being who's in the heavens and does whatsoever he wants, and there is no one or nothing who can stop him. A being so powerful that when all the kings of the earth rise up against Him, Psalm 2 says He laughed them to scorn. Talking about one being so pure that no sin can enter into His presence. Talking about a person so just that it guarantees every sin will absolutely be punished. I mean, that's a partial biblical picture of our all-powerful God. So when we think about God in light of his power and his greatness, his justice, his holiness, it, it gives us a clear picture of ourselves, doesn't it? What are we in comparison to God? God is holy. And what are we? We're sinful. God is powerful. What are we? We are weak. God has no needs. And yet we are desperately needy. God is eternal. And we are frail and fragile. When we recognize who God is. And who we are. Fear. Is a rational. And proper response. Fear. Real fear is a part of what's intended here. I mean, let's let's just think about people in the Bible. When Moses saw the burning bush and God speaking out of it, what was his response? He was terrified. When the Israelites heard God speak from the top of the mountain and give the Ten Commandments, what was their response? They were terrified. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, What was his response? Woe is me, I'm undone. He was terrified. And Jesus, when Peter in Luke 5 understood who Jesus was because of the drought of fishes, what did he do? He fell before him and depart from me. He was terrified. When John, who knew Jesus, saw him in his glory in in the book of Revelation, what did he do? He fell down as though he were dead in fear. Fear. Legitimate, real fear is a part of what's meant. Let's not underestimate that. But, let's also try to balance it. Because does this mean we're to have a terrible dread of a capricious God who will smite us at any minute? Well, clearly that's not accurate. That's not what we see in the Bible. So what does the fear of the Lord mean? The best way I can understand the fear of the Lord is it's a recognition of God's greatness and power that has been tempered by an understanding of His mercy and love. But there is an understanding of His greatness, His power, His holiness, and His majesty. And that should produce a legitimate fear. But that fear is transformed into an overwhelming awe and holy reverence when we understand His great love for us and His great mercy toward us. And understanding that God's greatness, power, mercy, and love motivates us. And this is the key to the fear of the Lord. It motivates us to remove ourselves from the center of the known universe. A person who is the center of the world does not fear the Lord. A person who is the center of even their own lives does not fear the Lord when I understand how great and awesome and loving and powerful and holy and good God is, the legitimate response, the right response is to fall before Him and say, I am a living sacrifice and I will live my life for you. You are the central authority figure in my life. You will tell me how to live and what to do it is essentially submitting our lives to the Lordship of Christ. It is saying, you are God and I am not. You are Lord and I am servant. You are Creator and I am creation. You command and I go. That is what it means to understand, to live in the fear of the Lord living where he is God and we are servant it is the only rational response for all he is all he's like and all he's done and the fear of the Lord really leads to the third one obey the Lord it says delighteth greatly in God's commandments the picture here it is what matters most for those who praise the Lord and fear the Lord is for God to be honored and his purposes to be accomplished on the earth right so when i understand who god is and what god is like i can't help but praise him it's just a overflow of my life but it also causes me to fear him to submit to him to give him that place of authority and lordship in my life and then what becomes my delight what becomes what is most pleasing to me is for God to be honored for God to be glorified for His purposes to be accomplished we love God's commandments as He says here because they represent His righteousness they represent His truth they represent His way of life we love the Lord and we love his commandments. So, what is the best way to demonstrate I love the commandments of the Lord? What is the best way to demonstrate I want God's purposes to prevail on the earth? What is the best way to say I want God to be honored by all in our culture? It's obedience. Obedience to God's commands, but not a grudging obedience to God's command. Rather, a joyful obedience to God's commands. Think along the lines of what John says in 1 John 5 and 2 about loving God means we obey His commands and these commands are not grievous or they are not a a burden. And this is, I think, the key. Because anyone can knuckle it under and force some obedience to God at times. Anyone can take the commands of Scripture, the thou shalt not" of the Ten Commandments. And for a time, they can make themselves do it. A lost person can knuckle it under. A person who hates God could knuckle it under. There is nothing particularly revolutionary about knuckling it under. The revolution is when we love those commandments. We delight in those commandments. It is not a burden to obey Those commandments. Anyone can outwardly obey. The kind of obedience that flows from understanding who God is. And what God is like. Is different. The kind of obedience that flows. From knowing who God is and what God likes. Is a loving obedience. I love to do the commands of God. And it's grievous to me when I fail to keep them. The kind of obedience that comes from knowing who God is and what God's like, it's a grateful obedience. It is one that says, I just cannot believe God is so good to allow me to do His will and express His purposes on the earth. The kind of obedience flowing from knowing who God is and what God is like, it is a joyful obedience. I rejoice to do the will of my God. He is so great and so wonderful and so worthy those who respond to understanding who God is and what God's like by praising the Lord, by fearing the Lord, and obeying the Lord. They are the ones who take God seriously. And the reality is those who are not moved by who God is or what God is like, no matter what they say, They do not take the God of the Bible seriously. So what we're going to do throughout the duration of this study is focus on a better understanding of who God is and what God is like. But we're not going to stop at sort of an academic understanding of these things. Like we're not going to study God is holy and just be like, whoo, God's holy and end it there. Instead, we're going to press in and ask, what response... To this new understanding of who God is and what God is like. What what response demonstrates I'm taking God seriously. And so in some ways we will always come back to verse 112 verse 1. In light of the fact God is holy, what does it mean for me to praise Him? In light of the fact God is holy, what does it mean for me to fear Him? In light of the fact God is holy, what does it mean for me to obey Him? I'll talk about that in regard to his His holiness, his goodness, his power, his sovereignty, his, the fact that we can know him. We're going to press in because we want to be a people who take God seriously. So of the three we've talked about tonight, which do you need to work on the most? Let's pray. Father, we love You tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. God, we want to be a people who take You seriously. We want to be a people, Lord, who are fully devoted to You. God, as we open Your Word and we begin to look at who You are and what You're like, let Your Spirit come and take the Word and make it living and active in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, this new understanding, let it just cause our hearts to bubble with love and amazement and wonder at who You are. Father, let it just erupt out of our mouths. We just can't help but praise our good and great and wonderful God. Let this understanding of who You are and what You're like increase in us an awareness of who we are in relation to You. We are not sovereign. We are not Lord. We are not the center of it all. You are. And let us obey your commands with joy, with gladness, with gratitude at with the privilege of getting to serve a God so awesome despite our many flaws and failings. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we just missed.